Today, as we hear the Gospel of John, I want to invite you into what we might call dislocation. This is not a medical condition. This is not something that will cause joint pain, I promise. This dislocation that I'm talking about is something that you've probably already sensed today, that you've sensed in our music, a misplaced theme, maybe, an unhinged hymn, joy to the world misplaced from its wintry surroundings, that resounding joy echoing off a different season, unhinged from the snow and replaced by a thunderstorm. It was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was Christmas in July. It was unaccompanied by anticipation, unencumbered by multi-layered tradition, untethered from the green and the red, the reindeer and the wreaths, the family stress and the family joy. Christmas, when dislocated, is free to be a gift apart from the gift-giving season. Christmas, when dislocated, might move us in a new way. Dislocation means reading scripture out of sync with its normal rhythm. Dislocation opens your ears. For example, have you ever read 1 Corinthians 13 somewhere other than a wedding? What might it sound like in a traffic jam on I-94? You're sitting there with hands at 10 and 2, white knuckles from the bumper to bumper, growing frustration, and you hear, love is patient, and love is kind, and love is not envious or boastful, and love is definitely not rude. Can your body relax then? Can your road rage die down just a little? Can your hands unclench from the steering wheel as you remember patience and kindness? Or what about this? Have you ever read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, wants, he makes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me to still waters. Have you ever read that while actually sitting on grass beside still waters? Wendell Berry says that scripture is truly an outside book, a book to be read far from the rumble of the air conditioner or the glow of the television. It's a book open to the sky. He says it's best read outdoors, and the farther outdoors, the better. And so I remember once sitting at the foot of Mount Rainier with a friend, and a hymn based on Psalm 121 came to us without warning. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Singing scripture while actually lifting my eyes to the mountains brought something divine into focus, if just for a moment. So here's today's hope, that the dislocation of Christmas in July, maybe for a moment, might welcome in the divine. That these familiar tunes and this familiar passage and the familiar ritual of lighting a candle might allow God's presence to dwell among us again. And so let us listen together for God's word, a word to us and for us and for all the world from John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today I want to talk to you about Christmas, and I'll give you a little road map. I want to talk to you about Christmas by way of two things. One, Alexander Hamilton, and the other, tent camping. So that is our journey that we are going to go on. Let us, let us journey together. This sermon is part of a, a six-sermon series that Joe Forrest and I are embarking on, and so you will be hearing from the Gospel of John um, for, for the next several weeks, excluding next week. Bill Evertsburg will be back in the pulpit next week. Um, but we will go from Christmas to Easter um, in, the, in these next several weeks. And so today we celebrate Christmas in July. So to begin... The Gospel of John is like Hamilton, the musical. Wait, what? The Gospel of John is like Hamilton, the musical. So hear, hear me out. Our choir is giggling because they are very familiar with Hamilton, it sounds. Um, Hamilton, the musical, won 11 Tony Awards and a Grammy and a Pulitzer Prize. And um, in the musical, you hear a retelling of our nation's history through the eyes of Alexander Hamilton. It's set up to be the most boring musical on the face of the planet. Hamilton is the first secretary of the treasury, for God's sake. But instead, Lin-Manuel Miranda dislocates, or at least relocates, Hamilton and Washington and Jefferson into hip-hop rap battles that illustrate the intense debates that went on between the founding fathers. Ultimately, Hamilton the Musical translates U.S. history into a musical language that bridges the divide between then and now. 
The cast is made up of entirely, almost entirely, men and women of color, African-American, Latino, and Asian-American men and women who portray historical figures who were historically, as we might say, white. One of the cast members, Renee Goldsberry, who plays Hamilton's sister-in-law, says that at its core, Hamilton is a story about America and that the most beautiful thing about it is that it is told by such a diverse cast with diverse styles of music. In Hamilton, she says, we have an opportunity to reclaim a history that some of us don't necessarily think belongs to us. An immigrant history, a protest history, a creative history, a renewing history, a game-changing history. Hamilton the Musical arrived on Broadway last year in the midst of an era when the racial majority in the United States was about to be the majority no longer. It emerged in an era when racial minorities were, in so many cases, still considered outsiders to the American tale, despite generations deep family histories on American soil. And Hamilton the musical arrived in an era when race and racism and racial tensions were and still are at the forefront of our national news on a daily basis. At its core, Hamilton reinvites the whole nation into the American dream in a way that can be heard by everyone, in a way that can be dreamed by everyone. And the Gospel of John does the same thing. It rewrites a history in a way that can be heard by everyone, in a way that can be dreamed by everyone. Although in this case, the Gospel of John is writing about the story of Jesus and not the American dream, but that was probably self-evident. The Gospel of John was written decades after the life of Jesus, after the other Gospels. Jesus' followers had spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. They had moved across the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Greece and to Rome. It was like Pokemon Go, spreading far and wide across cultures and continents at a speed unimagined by those who were there from the beginning. The Gospel of John sought to retell the story of Jesus in a way that could be heard and understood, this time not through the lens of the Jewish community from which the Christian movement launched, but now by those ever-expanding diverse communities of Christ that encompassed many cultures across the known world. And so that is why the Gospel of John begins the way it begins. Unlike Matthew, who begins with these genealogies that would have been important to the Jewish community but obscure to the rest of the known world, and unlike Luke, that begins with an orderly account of a baby born in Bethlehem, dealing with those names and places that, again, would have been so central to the people of Jerusalem, but would have been obscure and unknown to those in Rome or Greece or elsewhere. And unlike Mark, who just starts promptly and abruptly with Jesus as a grown man being baptized, the Gospel of John starts at the beginning. The Gospel of John starts at the beginning before the beginning, the beginning before time began because it is seeking to find common ground across cultures. It begins, the word was with God, because in the Greek culture, the word logos, or word, was at the core of the Greek philosophy. Logos was 
not just the root of the words logic or logical or anything that ends in ology, like biology or psychology or oncology, but logos was knowledge and wisdom and revelation, the thing that was at the very heart of God. Logos was reason and purpose and creative power. And so the Gospel of John begins with the word as God because Greek philosophers could hardly argue against such a statement. The Gospel of John begins as an inclusive gospel, a biography of Jesus that doesn't hesitate to open the doors at all to anyone. It's not just hesitantly opening the doors just a smidge to let in a few outsiders, but a story that flings open the barriers, tears down all the fences, removes all the walls, and fearlessly gives access to everyone. All things came into being through the word, the logos. And without this logos, this logic, this creative power, not one thing came into being. This is a wide open gospel, a gospel of welcome. And at Christmas time, maybe we are ready for a gospel of welcome. It's dark and it's cold. Without places of welcome, we might freeze. At Christmas time, we might be more primed for this gospel of welcome because of that ever-reinforced Christmas cheer, a spirit of generosity, special charity campaigns, toys for tots and mitten drives. We're ready for the gospel of welcome. But today, in the middle of summer, when we might be able to scatter to the ends of the earth, when we might be able to go to our own corner of creation, hopping on a bike to escape or running off to our favorite vacation destination to run away from the worries of the world, this gospel of welcome is a little bit more challenging. Today, in the midst of this particular July, when racial tensions are amplified by police shootings, shootings of police and shootings by police, this gospel of welcome might appear radical. Today, in the midst of this particular July, when religious tensions are amplified by international terrorism and the Islamic State can trigger an ideology of destruction online in places as near and as far as Kabul and Nice and Orlando, this gospel of welcome might push up against our human instinct to shelter and protect our own. And yet in this particular July, maybe we hear the wide open welcome of Christmas in a new way, a way that might transform us individually and together for the sake of the shelter and protection of all. So let me end with this. I'm about to head out into the wilderness with the youth of Kenilworth Union Church, and we ask you to pray for us in all the ways that you pray. And we will leave at what I might call stupid o'clock in the morning. It's, it's in the bulletin. It's 4 a.m. or something like that. Um, to catch an early flight north to Minnesota where we will camp and canoe for the week. And we will sleep in tents. We will carry all the food we need for the week with us on our backs and we will rely on one another for encouragement and for daily bread. And we will read scripture. We will read it outdoors and for some of us it will be farther outdoors than we've ever been. And so 
as I was preparing for this sermon today and preparing for that trip next week, I came across a translation note that struck me in a different way because I'm anticipating a week in the wilderness. The, dislo the dislocation of this text in summer was powerful for me, and here's why. In verse 14, the gospel writer says, The word came, became flesh and lived among us. The word became flesh and lived among us. Or other translations say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or took up residence among us. The translation note indicated that literally this phrase can be translated, set up a tent in our midst, or camped out among us. God set up a tent in our midst, or camped out among us. Where, I wonder, are the places in our world where we might need, again, God to camp out in our midst? Where might we ask God to set up a tent? In this gospel of welcome, God is willing to travel anywhere, to hike far and wide, to camp near us. Do we need God to camp out in Munich or in Nice or in Dallas or in Baton Rouge? Do we need God to set up camp in Kabul or in the unknown depths of the World Wide Web that can be the host to innumerable kinds of darkness? Do we not need God to set up camp in our living room or in our dining room or in our office meeting room or in our hospital room or in our community centers or in this very sanctuary? Do we need God to set up a tent within the unknown depths of our very hearts, where our worries hold court and our fears secretly outnumber our hopes. I don't know the answer to where you need God to set up camp. All I know is that in the Gospel of John, there is this sense of hope, a promise that God might set up camp anywhere across the many corners of the universe and that the, the door to God's welcome has been flung wide open. The invitation is for you and for me and for all who might hope to let light shine in the darkness so that the darkness might never overcome it. In the past months here at Kenilworth Union Church, we have let, lit candles several times to mark the loss of life that comes in a world that has darkness. The light has served to be a reminder that there is indeed a light that shines ever brighter and that God's dwelling place is among us, that God has set up a tent in our midst. Today, you have been given a candle upon entering the sanctuary. In a moment, we will sing Silent Night and we will and um, Bill Evertsberg and myself will come down the center aisle to light your candles so that you can pass your light down the pews to your neighbors. And so I ask that you notice the dislocation. Notice how light is already streaming in the windows today. How the light of summer looks distinctly different from the quiet light of winter. 
Notice how we sing Silent Night in the midst of the daytime and how the calm of summer is full of cicadas and birds, unlike that frosty calm of a snowy winter day. Notice the disruption of singing Silent Night in the midst of July, without the burden of having heard Christmas carols for months blasted from every corner store. The tune and the melody today might meld together in a new way. Notice the way that God sets up camp in our midst as we take the familiar rhythm of candlelight into the troubles of our July. I do not know what is on your heart as the candlelight shines in your midst, but I do know that God's welcome has been flung wide open and that the God of light and life has set up camp among us and that light is for you and for me and for all who might need God's light to shine in the darkness so that the darkness might never overcome it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.